0: You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So, pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home.
1: Welcome to episode five of the Central Station podcast. My name is Steph Coombs and in this episode I'm talking to Boyd Holden who is an international livestock consultant. Boyd has worked all around the world um, through the live export industry. He's been to the Middle East, Europe and Asia working with importing countries um, to help develop systems and train people um, that are importing Australian cattle and sheep. He's also done a fair bit of work in Australia um, and he also has his own farm where he raises, um, well, he does cropping, but he also and cattle. But he also raises stock horses and working dogs. So Boydie has been around and seen a fair bit, um, from abattoirs to feedlots to farms, cattle stations, sale yards, all across the supply chain, all around the world. Um, so we had a really good chat about some of the things he's seen and some of his thoughts. And, um, yeah, just to learn a bit more about what he does. So let's get into it.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds has been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over a 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high-fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au.
1: All right, Boyd, for people who aren't familiar with you and haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, can you give us a bit of a rundown about who you are, where you're from and what you do?
2: Sure, Steph. Um, my name's Boyd Holden. I've been running a livestock handling and animal welfare consultancy business since two thousand and seven. I'm based on the east coast of Australia, two hundred ks southwest of Brisbane, and we run a farm there. My wife and I have four children, and I've been fortunate enough to be involved in the live export industry, the feedlot industry, the saw yards, stations, research, anything really to do with animals, sheep, cattle, a lot of different species. And um yeah been traveling traveling Australia more recently, um, spreading the word, so to speak.
1: So what is it that you actually do? Because I know you through livestock handling schools, but you do a lot more than that, don't you?
2: Yeah, so obviously depending on what the client wants or needs, do anything from yard design, uh, looking at existing designs and how to make them uh, work better as in livestock flow. And of course, the thing that's becoming more evident in Australia is, is, um, about keeping people safe as far as work health and safety. So, um, that's, that's a very big part of my business and, uh, just making people aware of their, um, legal requirements whether you're employees or employers and industry just getting everybody up to speed with um, what they need to know and I suppose the word that I like to use is that if people are professional in the livestock industry there is a set certain amount of information that they just need to know and sometimes they know it and sometimes they don't but yeah, spreading that word so that they yeah they know what's expected of them.
1: Okay so we first met in 2011 at a live corp onboard stockmen's training course. So what can you explain what that course is?
2: Yeah, that that course is a requirement that the federal government puts on people who represent exporters that are looking after the livestock on short and long hauls um, on vessels. So those stock stockmen and women go to this course and they become aware of livestock handling, how to treat sick cattle, um, their legal requirements, a whole you know, gambit of things that they learn on that course to make them proficient to do their job.
1: Now, I remember, so in the course, it was theory and practical. Yes. And we went and did the practical session, I think it was at the Wellard feedlot just south of Perth. Yep. And then on the way back, I came and sat right behind you on the bus and that's where the stalking began and it's been about eight years and you haven't got rid of me since and I just remember though so we did the the theory and I had never heard of any of this stuff like I'd never done any livestock handling and then we went and did the practical and I was just like what is this like this is so cool and then I remember like you'd said like this was your job was to travel around the world and teach this to people and I was like are you kidding me this is the coolest job ever so I came and sat behind you on the bus and I was like hi and you're like just being friendly to everyone you're like hi I was like so Tell me what you did to get where you are now. Tell me everything. So can you share that with other people? Because I just wanted to know, I was like, how do you get a job like this where you get to travel the world and teach people how to work with livestock?
2: Yeah, I suppose it's a bit of a journey. Um, my, my connection to country was my mother's side of the family and they came from the Darling Downs region at Milmarin. And ever since I was knee high to a grasshopper, I suppose to speak, I was just interested in in animals and land. And that led one thing to another. I finished school and deferred from university. And like a lot of people that may listen to this podcast, you know, they went, you know, Jillerooing, Jackarooing. And um, I did that in the the Northern Territory and then Southeast Queensland. And um, I, I then went to uni. And where I went to uni was the New England University, University of New England in Armidale. And it's just surrounded by sheep and cattle and pastures but you know lots of livestock and I was fortunate enough to get involved with the manager of the university farms that was a very practical guy and joined clubs the camp draft club and et cetera, et cetera. but I got to meet some really good stock handlers dogs horses but people just really ingrained in um working livestock so it just one thing led to another and um before sort of Bud Williams had been known here in Australia, and that would have been you know in in the nineties, very early nineties, it was just I had heard of him and seen some very old recordings of what he did, and it just got me thinking about thinking about things from the um animals' perspectives because I was very keen on dogs and horses, and yeah, one thing led to another, and I left uni when after I left uni, I was still involved in mustering and training people's dogs and horses, and sometimes it's you know an opportunity comes up that you're very lucky and I'm so fortunate, all the opportunities that I've been given and one thing has always led to another and, and th- and that's really basically it. So, um, so yeah, somebody said, Oh, look, can you come and show us how to do this? Or why are you doing that? Et etc." et cetera. And, and of course I've learned from a lot of other people and also read information and you just make your own style. So yeah.
1: So would you say mentors have been a huge part of how you got the skills? Like, did you have mentors or was it just a lot of going out and like trial and error?
2: Uh, Look, a bit of both. So, you know, great advice for some, you know, from dog handlers. One fellow told me, you know, the first part of handling livestock is know that you can always be beaten. And um, I often say that to people and people look at me. I said, whether it's a baby lamb or a Mickey bull, you can always be beaten or that you won't reach your objective. And some obviously I have to go further to explain that to people, but don't think you're that arrogant that you're always going to have your own way. Work out how you can take the steps to achieve your goals. And of course, yeah, that doesn't matter what it is, whether it's life or whether it's handling animals, it's um, taking those steps. And the other one, when I was an agronomist, I was fortunate enough to um, do some communications, human communication cu- uh, courses, and there was a fellow called Stephen Covey. He's now dead. But he, he had this, um, one of these paradigms, one of the rules for successful people is seek first to understand before you wish to be understood. And really, good livestock trainers or animal handlers, that's what they try and do. They try and understand the animal in depth and see things from the animal's point of view and then change things around so they can get their result. So, yeah, so really it's all about understanding the animal's for me, and then go, well, how can we get them on a vessel, or how can we get them on a truck, or how can we get them to the yards? It's how can we work with them to, you know, do what we want.
1: So how do you make that step from doing things in Australia to being in live export in other countries? How did that happen?
2: Yeah, look, um, I got a phone call uh, back in 2006 and um, from a very good friend called Peter Dundon, Peter and Sharon, and they were working over there. And Peter said, oh, would I be interested in coming over and assisting with them, improving um, handling and animal welfare in the Middle East? And um, I still had a permanent job and I went two times and I just really liked it. I liked the people and the culture and um, and the ability to try and make things better or assist people. And that was really basically it. So that was um, 2006, March, March, April 2006.
1: So a lot of people obviously... What they know about the live export industry comes directly from the media or from other sources. And we don't often get to hear from people that have worked firsthand, you know, on the front line. What can you tell us about it? Like, and what was it like going over there and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, just to put an even keel on everything, livestock handling and animal welfare is a moving target and improvements are always ongoing, whether it be in our country, in America, anywhere. So we, it's you know, sometimes it's dangerous to isolate a particular country or a particular um, sector sector of the of the industry, and we need a balanced approach. So obviously, the live export is very different because we don't transport animals in Australia around the country with vessels. So it's got a few different dynamics, but animal welfare and improvements are across the board and continuing in Australia and overseas. But as far as the industry goes, look, it's very unique. It's got large numbers. So you can, for me, I I like gaining efficiency, and that's not about rushing livestock, but looking where we can make things more efficient. And when it's more efficient, it's better for the animals and also better for the people. So logistics, you know, on vessels, off vessels, Traveling vessels, looking after livestock, desalination plants—you know—and the whole shipping thing—it's a pretty unique, um, it's a pretty unique business in itself. And not many people, you know, get to travel on big vessels or know much about all of that and traveling across the sea. So that part of it is very exciting. And um, yeah, when you get into country, you know, they're just people too. So you know. A lot of people are trying to do the right thing by, by animals, and of course, those animals are going there for human consumption, which um, can be challenging for some people. But we eat those same animals here in Australia. But the cultures and the, and the different challenges, yeah, they they um, they can be overcome. And yeah, it's uh, wonderful. There's some fantastic people out there doing the right things.
1: So you've spent a lot of time training. Australians in Australia, and then obviously you've been, I know you've been in the Middle East, um, Southeast Asia, Russia, you've been all around the world. Are there any differences that you've picked up on training? I feel like with having, especially a language barrier, there's probably been a few moments that have made things a bit more challenging, or, yeah. or cultural differences perhaps.
2: Yeah, well, of course, the biggest challenge working overseas is the language barrier, but the great thing is really regardless of your colour or religion or your baseline, is that we're all human beings and we have fundamental things that how we operate. And um, the interesting challenge is that up until I worked in Russia, I always viewed viewed Australians as the most challenging and, and the irony of that is because we can speak the same language. The other countries, that the main impetus or driver for change and learning is that, to make things easier for the workers. So a lot of these people work very hard in extreme conditions. They might only have one or two sets of clothes. They're away from their family for years. But if we can make their life easier, so other than telling them, you know, and and you don't tell them what to do, but show them why why to do things. And And if something's easier, all human beings, when they step aside and, get egos out of the way and all that sort of stuff. If there's an easier way of doing things, you know, most human beings will adopt it. So, um, so yeah, so, so as far as that goes, when we first tra- started training on vessels, you know, a lot of people were so pleased that w- there was no banging and clanging anymore because the vessels are noisier as it is. So, yeah, so that's, that, that's a really interesting thing is the whole body language thing. It, it, you can communicate a lot to people. Do you
1: have any funny stories of of things that have happened when you've tried to change other people. I know I've had a few, when I was on the boats, just, just little things like trying to explain things to people or and then you try and say one word and then you end up, there's a lot of silence and a lot of laughs. And I mean, I loved working on the boats. Um,
2: yeah, well, um, one particular one, it, it doesn't necessarily, I was there when it was happening, but we were on board a vessel and, um, and uh, one of the crew came up and he was a Bangladeshi and he was talking to one of the Australian stockmen. There were three people on board. And uh, he came up, and there was a few horses on board. And he said to the to the person looking after the horses, horse singing and dancing, singing and dancing. And, of course, this meant the horse was rearing and neighing and that something had happened or the horse had got upset. But, yes, sometimes the way that people describe things yeah. Are, are, are very different and you've got to try and in, interpret them. But, yeah, the horse singing and dancing, you think horse oh, singing and dancing, that doesn't sound too bad. And uh, nothing untoward happened to the horse, but it was just very interesting the the word choices that sometimes people of other cultures use to describe uh, behaviours of animals.
1: Yeah. And so it was that, sorry, was that, where was that horse? On a boat? Yeah,
2: that horse was on a boat before um, EI came to Australia. Ah, oh,
1: okay. So...
2: We're talking about 2007 or two thousand. Okay, so we used to send... Yes, send horses to the Middle East, so yes. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I yeah. had no idea about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so
2: that, on that particular cargo, there was dairy cattle, there was horses, and there was sheep, and that went into the um, Persian Gulf.
1: Okay, and that stopped because of EI? Oh, well, that?
2: there's a... I, I'm not... Uh, that was definitely... I know when we got EI, I think um, we didn't e- export any horses, but yeah, I might have to check into that one, but yeah.
1: Interesting, Yeah, there you go, you learn something new every day. Yeah. So what are the other places that you've been to? I know you've been Middle East, um, Russia, have you been to Kazakhstan?
2: No, no, I haven't been to no. any of the stands. No, no, got, got very close to uh, Ukraine when a lot of that activity was going on between uh, 2013 and 2017.
1: And what is the work, I feel like what's going on in Russia is a little bit different to what's been going like. Indonesia, Middle East—they're just importing animals, you know, for slaughter. But Russia was a bit different. It was more breeding animals to kind of build up their own.
2: Hmm. Can
1: you talk about that a bit? Yeah,
2: sure. They um they were importing animals from Australia and America, Angus Angus heifers, and um yeah, wanting to establish a a beef business more like we know it. They tr- traditionally don't don't really have a beef business. The beef is a byproduct of the dairies over there. So yeah, so um. Yeah, big big investment in in uh, cattle, labour, and also land development. So I, I think they're somewhere around the half a million breeders now. So that project I think has been going for nearly um, yeah, eight years or seven years. Is that led um,
1: by the government then, or is that a private industry?
2: Ah, uh, private industry. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, very big organisation that has farming and also has pork production and a range of businesses. So yeah, and, and a lot of countries are wanting to try and be self-sufficient.
1: So what what's different about being in Russia over here?
2: <laughs> yeah, very different climate. It can obviously be cold and um, in the summer the growing conditions are amazing for the um, temperate pastures over there. So
1: how cold are we talking?
2: Uh, I believe it can get down to minus 40. I experienced minus 20 and very similar to North American conditions. So yeah.
1: How does that so I, when I worked in a feedlot in Canada, I remember my first day was negative 20 and the high that day was negative five. And I, you know, livestock are livestock, wherever you are around the world, and the same principles apply to livestock handling. But man, I found it really difficult to move cattle over there, especially because in their pens, they had these windbreaks and they did not want to step out from behind those windbreaks. Did you find any kind of different challenges trying to get cattle to move in Russia and
2: little things like that. I, in fairness, Steph, we we never really moved cattle when it was snow um, because it was just impractical. My main aim when I go there is to train people. Yeah. So they would have their winter season. They would then have a mud season, mm-hmm. and that would be the melting of the um, snow and ice, et cetera, et cetera, and then they'd start coming into spring. So we would turn up there in very early spring, and sometimes they'd be still a bit of snow falling, but there was really no not much snow about. But, yeah, some big big challenges, obviously, that, that those conditions can be trying for everybody. And, um, yeah, you know, really the only thing that really America has over us, in my opinion, is that they're used to managing the cattle in extreme conditions. Mm-hmm. And it really, there's no rocket science behind it, but it just comes down to nutrition and body condition of animals. And that's a bit like the opposite to what we experience in Australia with droughts. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. we, we have those other ch- challenges with our environment, with heat, et cetera. So, um, but yeah, look, the, the the environment there was definitely trying from a temperature point of view and they did everything on horses.
1: What, um, so if they're starting from scratch and they've decided to go to horses, what do you think drove that decision?
2: I think the um
1: rather than sorry just jumping to bikes or on foot or
2: yeah you know. I I think they went and saw a system in America and they said oh they liked that system and then they wanted to um they wanted to copy that so they built corrals or yards very similar to over there and they had bud box designs and yeah they basically it was like a Roman empire they made 45 farms, all exactly the same, basically all the same yard designs and corrals and they have winter pens so that the cattle come in basically in winter and they basically feed lot them for six months of the year. And the other six months of the year, the pastures grow and the cattle go on the pastures and and they make lots of hay. So, yeah.
1: So out of all the places you've been, where's the favourite place that you've worked?
2: I really, I really enjoyed working in the Middle East. And particularly a country called Oman, but um, yeah, the Middle East people very, very friendly, and some beautiful landscapes, and an, and an interesting culture. So, yeah, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of countries I've enjoyed working in them all.
1: What about though the biggest like the is there a moment you look back on and you go that I made a I mean I know you've made a real impact wherever you've gone, but is there a moment where you're like I had a real breakthrough there. Or even if it was just with one person and you go like, that was a moment I'll always remember having, you know, it really impacted someone or a business or.
2: Yeah, definitely in Russia, um, it was an idea of mine to set up an academy there where we trained people before they went on farms to gain efficiency and also safety. And um, and also so they could be productive, so they hit the ground running. So I was part of that for that company called Miratorg or Brans- Bransk Meat Company, in you know saying, look, let's let's make a centre where people come, and we train them on how to ride horses, how to strain fences, or how to move them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and that made a really big difference to that company. But for me personally, working on the vessels in the early days. And with big numbers of sheep on a vessel, 140,000 or 80,000 sheep and predominantly sheep, that just gave me an opportunity to, to think a lot and also use, use some ideas with large numbers and working with people and develop a system on how you solve problems.
1: Coming up after the break, Boyd talks about the transition from working overseas to back in Australia and what's involved in his livestock handling schools.
0: Charles Darwin University's agricultural and rural operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au.
1: Now, these days you're mostly in Australia. Um, what, how did that shift sort of come around that you've kind of spent so much time away and now you're doing most of your work in Australia?
2: Yeah, well, um, like a lot of people, my wife and I decided to have a family and one thing just led to another and, um, I went, started to do a lot more work in, um, abattoirs in the processing sector. Um, and that was driven by the EU and compliance and doing training there and working with a company called Mintrack and one thing led to another you know it was just it was just the way it went and my focus was trying to not be overseas because I'd be overseas for 35 or up to 90 days and away from my wife and kids and and trying to run a farm and do all that sort of stuff so yeah my focus just went from overseas to trying to do things in australia so yeah there was a lot that was sort of gaining momentum and um, yeah, just more work was popping up. So why go overseas when there's, there's things to do in our own backyard.
1: So what you just mentioned, you're doing some compliance work for avatars because of EU requirements. What is it that the EU is looking for that we have to be compliant with?
2: Oh, well, it was just back then, like a lot of compliance things is that um, people are wanting to know that people that are handling animals are actually competent. So there's a unit of competency that we have in Australia under the VET system, Vocational Education Training. And, yeah, so I was just training people to that standard. And, um, yeah, and that's compliance. A lot of people don't know about the compliance that we do for trade in different countries. And um, at that time, yeah, it was it, it's always a moving feast.
1: Yeah, so I would have thought that if the EU had requirements on us, it would have been about the quality of the meat and the way it's handled and all that sort of stuff, but it actually comes back to an, and obviously the way it's raised and the animal's still alive, but the handling is something that they are.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's, there's, they are, all of those things that you just talked about are in there as well. I mean, people often don't realise all the um, compliance and governance and all the things that go on um, from converting an animal that's alive into a product. There's a lot of stuff that goes on.
1: What about in the feedlot industry? What do you do there?
2: Yeah, so um, again about setting up systems and and getting animals about out of pens and uh, moving them, loading them onto trucks, and at an induction, making people safe and and um, yeah, improving the welfare of the animals, you know, minimizing stress or distress, and um, just just trying to improve things and develop systems in a workplace that every, that everybody's comfortable with.
1: And my favorite thing that you do is the station schools. So you travel around to cattle stations across the country and do livestock handling schools. But it's not just livestock handling. You also touch on animal welfare and workplace health and safety, which I've done a couple of different schools now with different people. And I haven't, um, as far as I know, you're the only person that's doing the workplace health and safety stuff. Can you explain to me? Because I don't don't know if you started off doing that because I first did a school with you. In 20 it was in 2011 that not long after I met you and I decided I was going to stop you and learn everything that you knew so I could have that same job that you had and you said sure if you want to if you want to you know get into this feel free to come to a school and so up to Yari I followed you in the Pilbara and we went to school and I don't know if we, there was as much of a focus on workplace health and safety back then I feel like it's been a, a transition um but why what made you yeah, you know, hmm. kind of change from just livestock handling to adding in these other components.
2: Uh, yeah, look, that's a really good point. I, I think um, whether you're a horse trainer or you're a teacher at a school, if you're on your game, you're always trying to improve yourself and, um, and you don't always think that you know everything and uh, that you're learning also along the way. So two things. One is I'm always trying to strive how we can do things better either sharing the knowledge, teaching and training people or how can we do a better job with the animals and also remaining current with what the research is doing. What was evident was that the safety issues were becoming more and more evident that, 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 that there was a need for that and we need to keep people safe. And from an animal welfare point of view, if we don't care for our people, well, then how are the people going to care for our livestock? So for me, they go hand in hand and a lot of people sometimes forget, oh, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on, it's just always animal welfare, animal welfare, animal welfare. At the end of the day, we've also got people involved and we need to keep those people safe as well. So, And, and you know, sometimes it, it can be dangerous handling animals and it is very hard to minimise the risks with cattle regardless of what happens. You've still got, you know, 500 to 1,000 kilo animals And um, yeah, things can then still happen.
1: So what are some of the workplace health and safety risks that you have identified and that you go through with people in the course?
2: Well, firstly, I've I've had the opportunity to work with um, WorkCover New South Wales and also Queensland and also touch base with people here in Western Australia as well. So it's not just me, what I've worked out, but just reading information, looking at the statistics. WorkSafe Australia has a lot of information and they put out a guide in 2016. Um, But the number one thing in yards is, um, obviously, as far as infrastructure goes, is gates are a real cause of injury. And then people not really having the tools, as in skills and knowledge, that when we're dealing with difficult animals, what are our options? So we need strategies. It's all good to get warm and fuzzy. But at the end of the day, I often say to people, which is more frustrating, working with the livestock or working with the people on the livestock? Everybody talks about, they go, oh, the people are more frustrating. And I then say, have you ever had a bad day handling livestock? That is, you haven't reached your objective. And in, so what we need is we need a skill set or tools or options or a system on when this has happens or that happens, what are we going to do? Let's think ahead of the game so we've got options and that we don't get emotion involved, we try not to get fear involved, and people make rational and logical decisions, because really none of it should be a surprise. And particularly if we're talking about in a set of cattle yards, we have a controlled environment. The yards don't change unless they fall down. So we should be able to develop strategies on what we're going to do. Of course, prevention is always better than cure. Why did that animal do that? Etc. cetera, et cetera. But we still just need to develop strategies on what we're going to do. And then when we have those strategies, people remain safe and also we optimise animal welfare. A lot of situations in relation to bad livestock animal handling or poor animal welfare with animals and people getting hurt is all around that people couldn't solve a problem.
1: So what are some of the accidents that you've seen or things that you've seen when people haven't had those skills? What have some of those negative outcomes been for, I guess, the people and the livestock?
2: Um. Yeah. So anything from uh, different stories. I was at one particular place, and and I said, look, you're doing development work here, and there's concrete, and there's large chunks that have been left over. I said they're a real trip hazard. Whilst I was there, a young a young fellow, 26, broke his ankle, and then I've heard other stories about an elderly man with a family, and they didn't clean up some rocks in a brand new set of yards, and he um he broke his ankle. Anything from minor like that to, you know, severe injuries on trucks to death on trucks, you know, bulls fighting, um, gates, people get being hurt by gates on yards. So, yeah, to, you know, trying to tell, or you know, share knowledge about how to ride a mustering bike properly so you don't break your toes on termite mounds and stumps in grass.
1: So, I don't want to give everything away, but can you just give us a bit of a, a taste or a preview of the things you run through in a school if somebody was to come to one of your schools?
2: Yeah, sure. We 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 basically start off um getting the people to talk and and one thing that I suppose that we haven't talked about that I try and do at the schools is is develop teamwork if it's not already there and explain to people that you don't necessarily have to like people or be best friends with the people that you work with, but you have to have a team environment when you're handling livestock. And part of that team environment, an essential part of that is effective communication. So we need to be able to put into words either what we can see that's happening or what we want people to do. So yeah, I give people a heads up at the very beginning that you know they're gonna do a lot of talking and um, that yeah, that, that that's an important part of working in the cattle yards. Um, and then we we go through animal welfare, and we go through all the safety risks, and then we go into detail into livestock behaviour, about understanding things from the animals' perspective, and then then rolling that into well, how are we going to um, how are we going to go and handle these animals practically? So we get a, what we call underpinning knowledge first before we go out into the cattle yards, so that when I start talking about point of balance or flight zones or their positions wrong on the mob, or you know they need to move from the wing to the point, etc that they can, you know, understand or that it's not the first time that they've heard those terms. And then we go through some different exercises with the cattle and start leading them down the path that we're actually livestock trainers. We are training animals for a response, whether that's positive or negative, and also unding understanding what the motivation is for cattle and sheep to learn and and how and how we do that. So yeah, and then the practical becomes very important. But that underpinning knowledge is is also very important and it limits you know too much discussion in the yards discussion's good, but yeah we uh we need we need to get that underpinning knowledge and then just hands on moving animals around and mustering them in paddocks and the other day on a station we we let out um three hundred and eighty odd keeper heifers on foot, and you know the people educated those heifers they weren't they were good heifers to begin with, but they'd never been outside with people just on foot so yeah get to that get to that point
1: one of my favorite things that you do at a school my favorite activity um is the yard critique and i think it's just brilliant because so what it is is you take people through the yards and you teach them how to critique and assess a set of yards because i think if you can do it if some people when you do a school you know you just do it in the one set of yards and you learn how to work those yards or if you're depending on where you're working it's you can get familiar with a certain design and how to work there and you know the sticky spots or the tro- and you know how to problem-solve in that set of yards. But with the critique, you take people through the yards and do a walkthrough and teach them how to assess any set of yards, wherever they are, pretty much anywhere in the world, so that they can problem-solve when they're outside of those yards and, and look at another set and go, all right, this might be a sticky spot or this is how I'm going to approach it here. Tell me a bit more about that.
2: Well, the, the yard system... It, it... It, it really came from when I was working on the vessels and I was you fix one you know you fix one section on a vessel but you're, you're trying to look at how you can be more efficient. So other industries they call them critical control points. but in the yards there's just key sections of the yards. and if you're looking at efficiency, you need to understand how the animals are going to react in those facilities and it basically comes down to livestock flow. And you need to work out what your limiting factor is. Is it the time that's taken in the crush? is that the length of the race is not proportional to other parts of the yards, and you just need to work to, to those factors and and work within the the capabilities of the yards. And, um, yeah, and that keeps people safe and it keeps cattle content. If you have cattle standing around for a long time or you're jamming too many in, in a particular yard, yeah, you upset the cattle and you're going to make it harder. So, and I think the important thing about that is regardless of the design of the yard, there's good designs, there's good constructions, but there's some that are not so good. All yards, you just need to work out how to best use them. So, And and that, again, that optimizes animal welfare and also keep, keeps people safe. A lot of times, people are standing in the wrong place and just making it hard work for themselves.
1: So I want to move on now to the Livestock Handling Cup. So the first time I went and did a school with you was on Yari Station in the Pilbara about eight years ago. And that's with Annabelle Coppin. And how long had you been doing schools there for by the time I came up with you?
2: Um, From memory, I think I started working there with Annabelle in her program in about 2007.
1: Okay, so you've been there for about 12 years now. Yeah. Okay. And obviously, yeah, worked very closely with Annabelle. And a couple of years ago, you guys came up with the idea together for the Livestock Handling Cup. Tell me about that
2: yeah look i'm I'm very good at coming up with ideas and um I keep everything in my head and uh Annabelle's really good at following through and making things happen so um and of course the winner handling cup is was only one part of that but um i was we were talking about there's often a lot of negativity about people how we you know in the livestock industry, and that really there's a lot of so many positive things that people do, and that you know people really care about their livestock so It was born out of how can we bring people together, have a meeting of the minds and showcase the great skills and the things that people do in the livestock industry, wherever it is. So this competition came up about how could we get people to come together and see if there's other and better ways of handling livestock, for one, and two, to showcase the skills and the knowledge of people handling animals. So so yeah so we came up with this bit of an idea and um and also to, for it to be fun but the competition is not about time the competition is about being skillful about being skillful with easy easy to handle animals and also difficult animals and it's about animal welfare and it's about work health and safety and it's about teamwork and communication so there's lots of levels there that really represent an industry or what people do on a day-to-day basis is, you know, people don't want to knock hips and they want to, they don't leave animals in the race for ages. All these things that people do on a day-to-day basis that are best practice, that's what we want to showcase there. It's, no, it's not about time and who can put an animal around the course the quickest.
1: So what's involved in the course?
2: So generally, um, it's, the idea was to start out with, well, well, what techniques have, got, have people got out there to settle and introduce themselves to cattle? Yeah, so... So that's the first part of the competition. After people do that, let's see the skills and techniques that people use to move animals through a set of yards and draft and select those animals and work together as a team. And we're looking at the flow, them not jamming cattle, how they draft them, using techniques to optimize the flow and also, yeah, to not frighten or injure the animals and also to that people do things safely. So that's that's that second section. And there's a bit of gamesmanship and strategy in there because they are then drafting out cattle that they're then going to use for the competition in what we call the obstacle course. And of course, if they're, if they're on their game, they're going to choose certain types of animals that are going to be easier to put around a challenging course. So they then choose and select half those animals and then draft those animals again to take animals into the obstacle course. And then it's game on for jumping tarps and going over barrels and Again, it's all about the control that those handlers have on the on the cattle.
1: Now, there's also a theoretical component to the co- to the cup as well, isn't there? Like, there's a um, like you actually have to take a test.
2: Yeah. So, um, part of part of the, the the fourth part of the overall competition was the team to select a representative to talk to a panel of judges or people from the industry, that are then going to ask about uh, industry issues and where people see uh, opportunities for improvement, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, to see how current people are and what ideas they may have uh, to help the industry.
1: So, was last year, was that the third year that the Cup was run?
2: Yes, I believe so. Okay, so
1: the first two years it was run between yourself and Annabelle at Yarri Station.
2: Yes, but it was was funded by the... um,
1: is it the okay so it was funded by the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association no
2: so no? the first the first two years it was funded by um in the Pilbara it was funded by what the Degray LDC oh
1: okay Degray LDC LD, LCDC
2: LCDC but That's it was not, but also also
1: a couple of, okay we'll, yeah the
2: council and yeah let's make sure because some people really kick some
1: going yeah yeah yeah, absolutely so
2: so the council the local council yeah they put in significant amount of money there were some really key sponsors that got behind it because it's really it was about livestock handling cattle it's also about the environment Mm -hmm. yeah and interacting with our environment yeah and also about communities so it's not just all about cattle it's that, that whole environment part and the landscape and being part of communities and ecology and all of that, is It's the whole sort of big picture because at the end of the day, we're handling these animals before we get them to yard. We're mustering them across the landscape.
1: Absolutely. I will find out exactly who those sponsors are and we'll put them in the show notes and I'll also just add a little recording on the end of this so people are aware of who that is. And then so last year was the first year the cup sort of got handed over um, to the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association for them to sort of take it on and run with it. Um, and we're about to have our fourth cup coming up in maybe it's got to be- end of, se- end of August. Yeah, seven or eight weeks' time on the 30th and 31st of August yeah. at Roebuck Plain Station, uh, which is just outside of Broome in Western Australia. So last year was the first year I actually got to attend. Um, and the first day was a best practice land, and animal ma- land management and animal welfare workshop. So there were speakers, there were vets- there were livestock handling people, um, nutritionists. Um, and then there were people from like rangelands, uh, NIRM. and so talking about best practice. Yeah. Uh, livestock management and land management. And then the second day was the competition. Uh, and then where you also had the, um, you know, the, the questions yet to answer to the judges as well. Where do you ideally, um, seeing as this is sort of you and Annabelle's baby from way back when, where would you like to see this go i mean it's great you've had two of them on yarry station last year it was at sandfire which is the halfway between port headland and Broome. this year for the first time ever well I, technically it was in the kimberley last year just just in the west kimberley this year it's moving a little bit further into the kimberley and we're hoping to draw in some new competitors um where would you like to see this go
2: well, well, would it would well, be fantastic for regional and then also state to get bigger and bigger, and um, for people in regional areas to showcase their stockmanship and their skills, and to also make other people aware of of how people handle livestock. There's a lot of misunderstanding, and you know sometimes bad footage shown, but we need to really show people and spread the word on how it can be done and how how it is often done on stations. So, yeah, not just here in WA, but spread it across Australia. So, it's, um, it's, it's really about championing best practice and championing what people do in the industry.
1: How hard do you think it is to champion that, though, and make it seem cool and sexy? Because, like, the photos that go viral on Facebook and the videos and the stuff that everybody wants to see on Instagram is someone getting chased up the rails. Is a cow coming at you and, you know, someone flipping over the rails or getting them with a the bull catcher and yeah, that's, you know, that's the cool stuff. Although for a lot of us, we're like, no, that's not the cool stuff. That's not the stuff we want to see. And if that is happening consistently, like this is a view that I've discussed with a few people that they're, they when you're handling such large numbers of livestock, there's, there's always, you know, statistically going to be a couple that are going to want to put you up the rails or that you might need to get a Toyota for or something, you know, or, or, or a stock whip or whatever. But, if that is happening consistently within your mob, if you have got such a backlog or a library of photos of people getting put up the rails, as cool as that looks, like you're doing something wrong. Like there's not something, there's, or you're not, it's not that you're doing something wrong. There is something that is not working there. So, I mean, that's what what people really want to see. And I think it's it's, it's one thing if just to get any kind of competition off the ground and get something to grow. But then I feel like there's this second layer of, Challenging these conceptions and and misconceptions of what is cool, and we're trying to make boring and quiet. Because I always say, like, boring is good. Like, if it's a boring, uneventful day, you know, no one's got chased up the rails, nothing broke from the mob, like that is the goal. But it's not. It's not cool, you know.
2: Yeah. Look, I mean, a lot of these new concepts, you know, have been they've been called low stress livestock handling. And and that concept has been really good for promoting a different way on how we should handle animals. At the end of the day, really, we're, for me, we're talking about stockmanship. There has always been different handling techniques since Adam was a boy. There's always been good livestock handlers, and there's always been livestock handlers that, you know, are not so good. So for me, the, the handling techniques... We need to be looking at how we can make things easier. You may start off with a difficult animal. Can you make that animal easier to handle and better for the animal and better for us? So for me, it's often finding the right measure. But I totally agree with you. If you're you're throwing all your cows to get them in the yards, well, something's not quite right. So... There's a range of situations out there in different landscapes of different types of cattle and some cattle that are very difficult to handle like mickeys or scrubber bulls. It's about trying to find the right approach that optimises animal welfare and keeps people safe. But it's about finding the right measure. So we need a balanced view, but at the same time, we also need to make sure that people are safe and that we're, we're doing the right thing by the animal and also legally doing the right thing by the animal as far as the codes goes. So it is, it is a bit of a challenge in relation to those images and that excitement of people being chased and the bull catching, et cetera, et cetera, but we need to try and have a balanced approach on how all of that looks in the whole scheme of things. Our forefathers did it all on horses, and obviously that can be very dangerous, but their whole thing was trying to educate livestock so they would stay together as a herd and walk and and boring gets very very good. So um yeah, that's really the challenge and one of the things that I say to my own children I say to them anybody can yell and scream and beat livestock not everybody can move livestock in the right way not yelling and screaming and not beating and not using force. So there's a there's a bit of a challenge out there. It's it's not so easy and the interesting thing is that often how we are programmed as human beings is very different of actually what we need to do. And good livestock trainers change themselves to suit their subject to get the overall outcome that they want. And you may use um, certain techniques to get Mickey bulls in the yards, but good livestock handlers are then moving those Mickey bulls around the yards effortlessly and without any fear.
1: So it's about having an understanding of the foundation of livestock behaviour and... Knowing the toolkit, having a toolkit, and knowing when to use which tools, really. Because, I, like I said before, I think every now and then, you know, and I, ideally the less often the better, but there is a time and a place where you might need to get your working dog or, or use your voice. I mean, ideally we like to spend our time in the yards not using our voice. But every now and then you just need to, to change something up and just, you know, but it's about knowing when to use that tool and which tools that you use you know, as less as possible and which ones you try and use more, more often.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. We need a balanced approach and we need to try and not play the blame game. And what I often say to people, before you take the next step or strategy, and if it's getting potentially more aggressive or more physical contact with an animal or whether you're using an electric goad or jigger, is you need to ask yourself, what have I done? How have I tried to communicate with that animal to get the result I want in a positive way? What have I done that that why it is now not listening to me? So if we if we take the onus on ourselves and if we want to avoid those more physical things, we, we often try, we will we'll find another way. But we just need to ask that question, well, before I get the jigger, that's a good example, the jigger, what have I done to try and move the animal down the race? And then we can, of course, go back... The other way, and say, "Well, could that situation be prevented?" So we just need to keep evaluating what we're doing.
1: So I'd like to finish up with a few, I guess, rules of thumb or words of wisdom from you, because there's one quote that you told me, yeah, all those years ago, and I always, it's always in my mind. Don't mistake activity for achievement. It's one I like to drop every now and then on people, um, and not just in livestock handling, but guess in anything in life. What are some of those? You can talk, tell me what that means or tell our listeners what that means and if there's any other pearls that you've got?
2: Sure. Look, for me, um, when I've been around livestock handlers and, and some of them have no idea about the theory or science that has been developed about livestock handling, is that good livestock handlers, it looks good, it looks effortless, and it looks graceful, and you just wonder how they do it sometimes. So... Looking at those people is one of the main ways in the early days that I learnt because I tried to ask them, you know, what are you doing, you know, etc., etc., and they couldn't tell you. So the number one rule is if you're working in a team of people, watch what the people are doing, what the cattle are doing, and what the situation is, because not always can the people tell you what they're doing. So be observant about what's going around you. If things aren't going right, stop, have a big deep breath. Yeah, and thirty seconds out or a minute out to have a think about how we can do things is nothing in the whole scheme of things. Yeah. And the other one is go to as many livestock trainers as possible, and you know go and see their ways of how they communicate with people, how they train their livestock, because not every not one person has the um, the only way. Obviously, there's some commonalities, but go and get educated and continually get educated on how we can do a better gig. And the other thing is that investing time in educating people and, and educating and training our livestock pays off to no end. So educating our keeper heifers, we just get to a point where we, we end up with a great product that just continues infinitum. And, of course, we also know that there's great gains to be had in genetic selection. So choosing uh, bulls or starting off with a foundation herd that has got good temperament makes a big difference because that's highly heritable. So, um, yeah, that's that. there's some key things that I, I would always consider that people should think about.
1: And can you, going back to that quote, though, can you explain what don't mistake activity for achievement means? And I suppose the other one that always sticks in my mind that you say is Violence begins where knowledge ends.
2: Yeah. So the confusing activity for achievement is either having too many people or being too busy and not getting anywhere. Is, is try and slow things down because less is more. And um, another one is going slow is quick. So just don't be too busy. Have a think about how what you're doing and how you can be efficient. And sometimes being too busy around livestock, too many people, too much activity just confuses them. So, you get those people that look like they're really doing a lot, but at the end of the day, you can get other people that are have the same objective, and are not doing much.
1: Yeah, I always and I've been a few places, particularly when I was in America, and we're bringing. I can remember bringing in a mob of cattle, and they were going fine. And I'm just there was like five of us on horses, and we're just, I'm just kind of there walking, you know, kind of moving my way around the mob, but not doing anything. Whereas the other cowboys were like. Yep, yep 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 and you know and trotting back and forth and just you know it' was all all go 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 and these cattle are just walking back into the to the corrals nicely and afterwards i got sat down and told off that i wasn't doing enough and i was like if you watch that mob mate like they were walking oh it made me wild they were walking fine but it just made me think don't just because you're out there being a cowboy going like, yeah 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 and you know and trotting your horse up and down and getting it worked up in a sweat like doesn't actually mean that you're achieving anything. You could have been walking and doing a lot less. Than those cattle. Yeah, those cattle are walking beautifully. Um and the and the other one that yeah, that pops into mind a lot is violence begins where knowledge ends.
2: Yeah, and, and, and that's a really good one because often when we, you know, potentially get frustrated with animals, um, not so much of course it does happen with people as well. We we want to start getting physical with them. So We just need to really step back and have a look and some of the strategies that I came up with were just designed around, I'm not going to touch the animal, I'm not going to touch the animal, how can I get them to move if they stop and and a clear example of that is in the race, you know, animals are most vulnerable in the race and that's when people want to start touching them, you know, we don't often touch them anywhere else in the whole yard system or out mustering, so we just need to think more critically about what we're doing.
1: Okay. Very last thing I want to talk to you about because I know you've got a plane to catch and that would be a bit awkward if I make you miss it. (laughs) Um, This booklet, I'm holding my hand for people obviously that you can't see it, is the 2019 version of the Is This Animal Fit to Load guide from Meat and Livestock Australia. They've just re-released it and I just want to keep talking about it so everybody is fully aware that you can go to Meat and Livestock Australia, um, their website, and get a PDF version or you can get a hard copy from them. You've worked all across the supply chain across the world. How important is a book like this?
2: It's It's been fantastic. I mean, the, the things that have changed now in sale yards and animals that have been uh, delivered to either abattoirs or loaded on trucks, things have changed in the last 15 to 20 years. And this book, it, it just puts... You know, it puts everything out there for people to be aware of, you know, what can I put on the truck? What what can I put on the truck? And, you know, what are my responsibilities? So, yeah, you know, anything from cancer eyes, we don't see those now turning up at abattoirs or very, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the big hideous ones or turning up at sale yards anymore. They're, they're far and few between. You know, animals that are non-ambulatory, can't bear, bear weight or got a broken leg. That stuff is, you know, disappearing because these little tools like this, these books makes makes people aware and the pictures and the words, there's sort of no question, you know, it, it makes it pretty clear.
1: Yeah. And so they are for anybody, um, if you just go, even if you just Google, is it fit to load 2019, you'll find the most recent copy on the Meat and Livestock Australia website. Give them a call or an email, get your hands on a copy. They're in this, I don't know what you call this paper, but it's kind of like a plastic coated paper so that it can, it's pretty resilient yeah pretty durable you can chuck it in the ute chuck it, have a set in the yards they're quite little give one to everyone on your crew and can't go wrong all right Boyd. so we'll leave it at that for now we'll do another episode when you come back in august <laughs> and we might just do that one maybe on actual livestock handling and a the theory behind livestock handling and share some of that but thank you for coming on the podcast
2: my pleasure good on you stephanie keep stalking
1: Earlier in this episode, we were talking about the sponsors for the first two Livestock Handling Cups. Um, We just wanted to make that correction that it was the Pilbara Development Commission and Rangelines NRM. So big shout out to those organisations for supporting the Livestock Handling Cup and getting it off the ground. There are currently over 1,100 compelling true stories on centralstation.net.au which will open your eyes to what life in the Outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. There are yarns from station managers, ringers, cooks, govies, pilots, vets and more, told with humour, self-deprecation and pride in a job well done. There are tales of working in stock camps, mustering cattle and how education and socialisation works in some of the most remote parts of Australia. There's stories about the wonder of living in an amazing landscape, but also the perils that come with flood, fire and drought. And there's stories about the inherent danger of living in isolation, including times when the flying doctor has come to the rescue. These stories paint a vivid picture of outback life, the good, the bad and the dusty.